Hi, this is Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante. And at long last, we have come to the lustful. In this podcast, we are walking through the comedy slowly, bit by bit. And we are in Canto 5 of Inferno. We are at lines 25 through 51. I'm going to give you my rough, and it's rough, English translation. I was just chatting with a guy, well, tweeting back and forth with a guy this morning. Oh, my gosh. He gave me some of his lines. He's doing his own translation of Inferno. They were so beautiful and so poetic. He had such a great voice of the poetics of the poem itself. It made mine seem just all the rougher. But here it is, my rough translation. You can find it on my website, markscarborough.com or walkingwithdante.com, or you can just listen to me read it, Inferno, Canto 5, lines 25 through 51. Now I begin to feel the note of sadness. Now I came to a place where a great wailing knocks against me. I came to a place where light itself is mute. A place that roars like the sea in a hurricane when conflicting winds slam against each other. The hellish whirlwind, never resting, drives the spirits on with its violence. It tortures them, turning and bashing them. When they are driven up to a ruined outcropping, they shriek, wail, and lament. They even curse divine strength. I understood that those tormented like this were the ones damned for their carnal sins, those who made reason bow down to lust. And as in cold weather, when the wings of starlings carry them aloft so that they crowd the air, Just so does that wind carry those evil souls up and down, here and there, without any hope to comfort them, or any lessened sorrow, or even a place to light. And like the cranes that go chanting their sad songs, making long lines up in the air, just so I saw them coming on, offering their cries, shades carried on by that blasting wind. So I said, Master, who are these people whom the black wind so castigates? And that's where we're going to drop it. We're going to drop it at the, we pick it up next time <laughs> with Virgil at the answer to that question. But I just want to go back and do the passage itself. There's going to be a little bit here about the passage, but more about Dantean poetics. This is the lustful. They were being driven about by a wind. It says, those who made reason bow down to lust. And they are being blown this way and that by terrible tempests. Now, somebody is going to say, how can there be terrible tempests inside this cave in the earth in hell? I told you earlier, the medieval notion, this is really the classical notion, the medieval classical notion of earthquakes is of wind released from underground. So we wouldn't be surprised if we were a good medieval to discover that there are all kinds of windy storms happening underground. That's not the weird part. Instead, this is the weird part. The first line, now I begin to feel the note of sadness. Notice that I just said something in the present tense. The scene of the lustful opens with a note from the poet. 
Now I begin to feel the note of sadness. Next line, we're back to the pilgrim. Now I came to a place where a great wailing knocks against me. The very first line of this passage in which we begin to confront the lustful is basically a confession by the poet. Remember I told you they all come up to Minos and they confess? Hmm. Here's a confession. Now I begin to feel the note of sadness. Now, let me say, let me just say before I go any farther, that this present tense could be being used as a historical present. There is a way that that can work in Italian. The present tense is so, um, what, so driven, so present, that it's being used to describe the past that has come so far forward into the present because of its import. That's good, but I like to see this as a little bit of poetic curtain pulling. (laughs) Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. And we see the poet because the poet's ambivalence will become increasingly marked throughout the rest of this canto. And that we start with this present tense feeling a note, a song, a note of sadness. That we come into this moment hearing the poet say, oh, I remember this. This was bad. It tells me that I'm setting it up for what's going to happen. And what's going to happen is something very dramatic to the pilgrim in this passage. So I just want to say that I, I hear the poet. There he is. Then I see the pilgrim. I came to a place of great wailing where great wailing knocks against me. And notice the wailing is hitting him like the wind hits the damned. A great wailing knocks against me. I came to a place where light is mute. Light itself is mute. How can light have sound? This is a synesthetic experience. So light itself seems mute or (laughs) sounds themselves seem dark or, you know, light itself seems sour. This is some kind of grand synesthetic that is a combining of the senses kind of becoming overwhelmed right here at the front. Believe me, this will play out. I came to a place where light itself is mute, a place that roars like the sea in a hurricane where conflicting winds slam against each other. The hellish whirlwind, never resting, drives the spirits on with its violence. It tortures them, turning and bashing them. This is so clear. We've had so much elliptical stuff that this is actually very clear what's going on. These souls are being blown about in relentless winds that are bashing them together. And then we get this line, when they are driven up to a ruined outcropping, they shriek, wail, and lament. They curse divine strength. I should tell you that this is a tough line when they got driven up or when they are driven up to a ruined outcropping. It's a tough line to translate. And my translation of it <laughs> reflects one way to look at it. There is a there are some great articles on the problem of this one line. One hmm, published oh, years ago that actually outlines seven different ways you could translate this line when they are driven up to a ruined outcropping. It's a problem on a, a word, la ruina, the, the ruin itself. And it's a problem of how to fit that into the sentence. It's complicated. I translated it this way so that it would show that there is a kind of precipice or outcropping that I think Virgil and Dante are eventually going to get up on. And it's broken. It's ruined. It's like a pediment that's ruined. And this is the first 
hint for me, not for everybody, it depends on how you translate this line, this is the first hint for me that hell is in ruins. Remember I told you that hell is a city and we had the country of state of limbo, remember all this and the hostelry of pain just two episodes ago from Minos in the opening of this canto, and then we're going on down toward the walls of Dis, the walls of the actual city of hell. What I didn't tell you is that it's in ruins. This city is actually not a glimmering city on a hill, but is instead lying in all kinds of broken ruins. And I think that this line is the first glimpse of that. A lot of people don't agree with that because a lot of people say it's not explained enough. And so it would just be weird. Why is it ruined? Why? Why? It just brings up the question of why without Dante explaining it. I think he's setting it up so we can explain it later. But again, let me just say there's a translation problem on this line. But it doesn't matter as long as we look at the souls. They shriek, they wail, they lament, they even curse divine strength. And then this moment, I understood that those tormented like this were the ones damned for their carnal sins, who those who made reason bow down to lust. Notice that Dante makes this assessment, understands who these people, souls, these shades are, without Virgil. This is unlike in the neutrals where he says, whoa, who are these people? This is unlike several passages later in Inferno where he doesn't seem to know who these people being punished are until Virgil fills him in. Here he seems to have no doubt he doesn't even need Virgil. I understood that those tormented like this were the ones damned for their carnal sins, those who made reason bow down to lust. If I stepped up onto an outcropping and I saw souls being driven in every direction by hellish and unbelievably forceful winds, I'm not sure I would look at them and go, oh, the lustful, of course. It partly has to do with a medieval notion that lust can be brought on by mm, winds trapped inside the body. <laughs> I'll, I'll leave that to your own imagination. Winds trapped in the body. It's also brought on maybe because of the notion that they're completely out of control. It does say those who made reason bow down to lust. But that Dante knows instantly who these are, no questions asked. These are the damned, who those were damned for their carnal sins. That he knows that instantly is going to play out in the passage because this sin of lust, of course, is very near and dear to Dante's heart, very near and dear to his heart, the poet's heart, the pilgrim's heart, because, of course, Beatrice, because, of course, he's married Gemma Donati and yet he still is hankering for Beatrice. This sin is very close to Dante, and it doesn't surprise me that he instantly knows who the lustful are. Oh, I know why, what? I felt this. I felt this internal wind. <laughs> I know exactly what this all means. And notice the rationale first given. Those who made reason bow down to lust. That is the pilgrim, or the poet's, initial interpretation of what lust is, that reason is, is what, subsumed by the feelings, that you've lost part of your reason because your internal drives have thrown it over or caused it to bow down. That's the initial assessment. Sounds good. Sounds pretty orthodox. It's not going to play out in the canto this way, but sounds pretty orthodox right now. We got the orthodox explanation right out of the way. Okay. That's our first vision of them. And now it's going to change and we're going to get a metaphoric vision of them.
And as in cold weather, when the wings of starlings carry them aloft so that they crowd the air, just so does that wind carry those evil souls up and down, here and there, without any hope to comfort them, or any lessened sorrow, or even a place to light. First big simile. As in cold weather, wings of starlings. Mm, I, uh, I have nothing against starlings, so don't write in if you're a starling. <laughs> But essentially, trash birds. I don't know. I like starlings. Come on. But common birds, like robins. I mean, not giant noble birds. The wings of starlings, as in carry them aloft as they crowd there. You've seen these giant clouds of starlings flitting each way as the wind blows them. In the, and, you know, like a school of herring practically up in the air. You, you've seen that, I'm sure. So that's the first simile that they're like that, just so does the wind carry those evil souls. So it's actually not a simile about the souls, maybe a little starlings. It's actually a simile about the wind, just so does that wind. It's not that these are all starlings, although in medieval iconography, birds are notoriously sexual. They're notoriously... They, Medievals, how do I say this? Medievals think of birds the way you and I in, in the United States and the UK think of rabbits. They just breed forever. That is the common perception of birds, that they are extraordinarily lustful. That's the Canterbury Tales with the birds in the very opening bit. That, you know, they stay up all night with their eyes open because they're so full of lust in the spring at the opening of the Canterbury Tales as people start to go on pilgrimage. Okay, it's that. But the simile is really about the wind. It's just so aloft did that wind carry them in air. So does that wind carry those evil souls up and down here and there without any hope to comfort them or any lesson sorrow or even a place to light. And then, wow, this is a double simile. We get a second one. And like the cranes that go chanting their sad songs, making long lines up in the air, just so I saw them coming toward me or coming on. Look at that. So the, the bird has changed. Cranes. These are, God, again, the Starling Commission. Don't write me. But these are not trash birds. These are cranes. Noble, wild, beautiful birds. Cranes that go chanting their sad songs. And notice, while the, the starlings are just driven about in the air, what we know about the cranes is that they produce poetry chanting their sad songs make long lines up in the air just so i saw them coming toward me i th so this is actually a simile about perception it's about what i see i see the cranes in the air going over and i hear that song they make as they go over <laughs> where i live in new england it would be geese but you see the, the geese going over and you hear the honking they make and it's actually, this simile is about being on the ground and seeing it and what it makes you feel like. Just so I saw them coming toward me, offering their cries, shades, notice this is their offering, offering their cries, shades carried on by that blasting wind. So I said, Master, who are these people whom the black wind so castigates? And since he knows already that these are the lustful, he's clearly asking Virgil not what are they punished for, but who are they? Like, I want a roll call. 
who are these people whom the black wind so castigates? Because in the next episode of the podcast, we're going to get a roll call of who are these people being blown about by the wind. So again, this is not a question of who's being punished here. It's a question of name them. Let's hear them. Who are they? Okay, double simile. That's what I want to go back to. This double simile in Canto 5 is an oft-commented-on passage. There are a lot of people who talk about it because it's a beautiful simile. The double bits, starlings and cranes, crowd the air, sad songs, long lines, carry them aloft. There's all kinds of parallelism that's going here. It's beautifully set down. There's an intermediary tercet or three-line bit up and down here and there with any hope to comfort them or any lessons or even a place to lie that sits in between the two similes. So the first simile carries over into a second three-line group that kind of is the turn. So we get a further explanation of the starlings up and down here and there's any hope to come for them or any lessons or even a place to light to set down and that brings on the imagery of cranes which fly long distances so we've got this pivoting bit between the two it's really well crafted and beautifully done and it's often interpreted that the starlings are for lack of a better word all the commoners who who are caught up in lust and that the cranes are all the exemplars or the noble people caught up in lust. Uh, they still have the ability to use language. They chant their sad songs. They, these are the exemplars, the noble people. So we have the trash and the nobility, as it were. I don't buy it. This seems a reasonable reading but it's not going to play out over the course of this canto. It seems right right here to say, oh, there must be, you know, just the run-of-the-mill people caught by lust, and then there must be some really noble people who still chant their sad songs. The problem is <laughs> who we're going to hear from are not the really noble people. That's the big problem. We're going to see the noble people next time, but then we're going to actually hear from just some plain old run-of-the-mill people. And they're going to be the ones who the, the canto focuses on. So while it seems like this is how this should be interpreted, the canto blows it apart as it goes forward. Indeed, it's a double metaphor that expresses what will finally be the almost unbelievable ambiguity in the canto. The double simile here is a reflection not of class, but of poetics, of those who can still speak even in the whirlwind. And those who can still speak even in the whirlwind are shocking. One more thing about similes. We've come across several of them. Remember, they started out when he, uh, Dante the Pilgrim, escapes the wood and starts up the mountain. And it says, like one who came out of the water, but, you know, the turbulent water, but looks back. And we've had several of these similes already. And you can see here with a double simile, like I told you, they're going to get more and more elaborate, pronounced. Wow, wait till some of them come up that go on for stanza after stanza after stanza in the poem. They get giant and big and complicated. And you can see this already with a double one here. So I want to say a little bit about the uses of these similes, just as in cold weather when the wings of starlings and like the cranes that go chanting. There's several reasons for these similes, and let me give you four different reasons why Dante writes similes so clearly and so effectively into his comedy. 
One is that the similes are indeed ornamental. This may seem like a very elementary answer, but it's not. Um, you may think that they're decorative. Uh, maybe they are a way, how's this, to tap the brakes on the narrative. The story's rolling. It's rolling forward, and sometimes you need to just hit the brakes just a little as an artist. You need to stop and let me think about it just a second. And here we rolled through these these souls being bashed around by the winds and we rolled right through the plot there and then we came out to these two similes and you could feel the plot mm, break just slow just a bit right there and that's good actually it allows me to further reflect on the plot itself so while i say ornamental or decorative how about this it's tapping the brakes on storytelling car will slow down so you'll notice what's around you before we blow on with shades where he's his master who are these people whom the black wind so castigates just before we blow out through the plot and the big roll call of them this lets me stop and have a, mm, a an aesthetic moment that's one reason for similes here's a second they're also digressive or discursive or they fill in material around the plot itself. I don't mean digressive in a bad sense of the word. I mean that they fill in the emotional space for the narrative. Here we have this very dramatic scene of souls being blown around in this hurricane of winds and they the pilgrim and his guide are standing on this outcropping, or at least so I translate it. And so, it's so dramatic that this allows us a kind of moment where we can give some emotional space to the poem. And surely, when I talk to you about starlings in those great giant crowds in the sky, or cranes going overhead, surely you could feel a little bit of emotional resonance there. That's what I mean by digressive. They allow an opening for emotional space in the poem itself. That's another reason for them. But there's a third reason. Similes are invitations to multiplicity. I've said this a thousand times, and I'm going to say it a thousand more times before this is all over. This poem, oh, it supports multiple readings, hundreds and hundreds of different interpretations. And similes such as these invitations to that. They're invitations to allow the reader to step in and say, wait a minute, how are the lustful like starlings? And wait a minute, how are they like cranes? And why are they like both cranes and starlings? And that bit right there, it allows you and me and everyone who reads the poem to offer their own answers. A very pat answer is commoners versus nobility or the crowd versus the exemplars. But there are other reasons. And I just gave you one for me is that these two similes set up an ambiguity that is going to play out in the rest of the canto itself of the lustful. I went in a different direction. And I bet if we were sitting together over a glass of wine, well, let's hope we're sitting over two glasses of wine, one for you and one for me. I bet we could come up with more ways that the starlings and cranes work in this whole canto, especially once you see the whole canto laid out in front of you. This is an invitation to open the poem up to its reader and open the poem up to the reader's space and allow the reader in to make interpretive judgments on the poem. Even the way music is notated in the Middle Ages allows a... Uh, 
it's a little bit too big to say, but it allows a greater freedom from the artist than modern Mozartian notation, which of course allows interpretive space, but medieval musical notation often allows gigantic interpretive spaces to open up, places where you're supposed to improvise, places where the line itself rather just states itself, but with gaps in it that allow you as the performer to enter the space and make something further out of that line. That's like these similes. They're inviting you into the poem, inviting you into the interpretive act, and inviting a multiplicity of meanings to erupt in the poem itself. But there's a fourth reason. Remember I told you that we talked about anagogical readings of the poem? Let me go back and explain that one more time. There was, we talked about literal readings of a poem, you know, just the plot of Dante and Virgil find Minos, Minos makes these claims, he's wrapping his tail around himself, he's yelling at them for time to quit, they walk on a little farther, they find this precipice, they stand on it, they see the lustful being blown about by hurricane winds, you know, it's the literal reading of the poem itself, and, you know, I'm having to fill in some details, like, this is the first time we found out hell is a ruin, and that's because I know what's coming up in the poem, so I'm filling in some plot details for you that seem a little opaque right here, but basically it's the literal level of how it goes. And then, of course, we've always talked about the allegorical level of the poem. And we've seen all kinds of allegories. The three beasts on the hill. Why does Dante's one foot firmer than the other one on the hill? We've talked about the big dog or the little dog that greyhound born between Feltro and Feltro. These are heavily allegorical passages. And you should know that almost everything that happens has happened that we've seen and that I've blown past the, on a literal level also has all kinds of allegorical readings historically behind it. Minos, my gosh, you could imagine the allegories that Minos is an allegory for the discerning tastes of lust. That's why he's such a connoisseur, a cognoscente of sin. It's the discerning tastes of lust. It's that lust makes you think your taste is so important. And he's an allegory of kind of the place at which reason and um, hellishness intersect. There's hundreds of ways that you can allegorically read Minos in the poem. But there's also this third reading that I introduced a few episodes ago, an anagogical reading. Almost all complicated medieval texts have an anagogical focus underneath them. An anagogical reading is basically mm, that you're taking the text and you're seeing how what it, how it reveals the eternal struggle between good and evil. You're taking it and you're trying to see the the unbelievably complicated but also foreordained struggle between the good and the bad that is the very nature of the universe. And you're trying in the poem to assert what, or in the thing that you're reading, to assert what is its anagogical function. That is, how does it reveal the struggle in the spheres that you can't even see between the angels and the demons, between God and Satan, between good and bad. How is it revealing that? Here's the thing that I think is so interesting about Dantean similes. They essentially offer you a reverse anagogical reading of the world because they take the world, starlings, cranes, turbulent waters, shipwrecks. They take the physical world and they ask you to see it 
as a representation of the spiritual world. So here, I know, it's comparing the spiritual world to the physical world. You see the souls as starlings. But behind that, you're also now supposed to, I believe, turn away from this and look at starlings as they crowd up in the sky above you and think of lust. Think of the eternal struggle to control the passion of lust. Oh, you're supposed to look up and see cranes, or as I said in my part of New England, geese honking as they go past you. And you're supposed to now see that as a representation of the sad songs that the lustful must sing as they are driven forward by their sins. In other words, I'm being asked here not only to compare the spiritual world to the physical world, I'm being asked to turn back around from the poem and now look at the natural world and see it as a reflection of the spiritual world. So I am being invited to give an anagogical reading of the real physical world around me. I am being invited into that space to see, in fact, the natural world as itself a mm, symbolic representation of the eternal struggle or of the struggle between good and evil that is foreordained that good will win in a Christian tradition. But I'm being asked to reinterpret nature in a certain way that allows the space for the this giant morality play to play out behind the starlings and cranes. I know that's really tough and really hard to get your head around at first, this idea that I'm invited to not only see the spiritual world as kind of mm, explained by the natural world, but now I'm also telling you that I think you're being asked to look at the natural world and see through it to a spiritual struggle, to see starlings, to see cranes, in an anagogical light. That means the poem is educating you on how to read the world, how to read the world as a further grand theater of the meaning of all that is. Wow, is that not too grandiose? Of the meaning of all that is. So these similes open up spaces in the poem that are so important. There's a reason why 700 years of commentary has focused like a laser onto these similes, because they offer the greatest chance for multiplicity. They offer the greatest place for digressive emotional space within the narrative context. They offer the greatest opportunity for the, the poet to, to work his art and tap the brakes on the very narrative that he's writing. But I also think they offer a way to educate the reader to see the natural world as a theater of the spiritual world, a reverse anagogical reading. We're going to have to watch how that happens in the next passage of The Lustful. So let's just say that you should subscribe. You should rate this podcast. You should leave me a comment if you want. You should check back in soon because we're going to go on with the lustful. We're going to come and see the great roll call of them in the next episode. And then two of the lustful will step out and give the first giant speech of Inferno that is not from either the Pilgrim or Virgil. It's I literally said that and got goosebumps thinking about Francesca and Paolo and how they step out and what they say and how in the end they put the lie to the notion that lust is just having reason bowed down to the passions. 
but that it is way more than that. So thanks for being on this journey with me, and I will see you soon.